This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Ronnie Johnson still remembers the first time he went underground. He and a handful of other coal miners piled into a little trailer and descended into the mine. We were going down through there hitting bumps and running over little rocks and stuff. And uh, I remember laying in that little trailer and the, t- the roof was actually so close to me that the bib of my hard hat would almost hit the roof. When they got down to the bottom, Ronnie's boss handed him a wrench and told him to open a nearby water line. But someone had forgotten to cut the water off. Like water just started spraying me. It just sprayed all in my face and all over me. I was soaking wet. And it like I, I just like fell up against the rib, you know, the wall of coal. And I thought to myself, what have I done? As a new miner in a dangerous industry, Ronnie had to go through an intensive orientation process before this first trip underground. That's producer Irina Zhorov. Ronnie is actually my partner's father. He lives in northern Alabama, and on a recent visit, as the family cooked dinner, Ronnie and I went out to his workshop, where he likes to sit and smoke with only the dogs and cicadas for company. Somewhere else you want to do it, here or somewhere, I, I don't care. We can just go back there. He told me about how he sat through 40 hours of training and safety classes before going down into the mines. At the end, he was issued a hard hat that identified him as a rookie. The hard hat was yellow. It was like like you stood out from here to the road, you know. It was terrible. It was terrible. Was it terrible because you'd get, you'd get like crap from the other men? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody knew you were a rookie, you know, and just, you know, practical jokes, just nothing serious, but... In addition to this terrible yellow hard hat, the safety man at his mine also gave him a sticker. Yeah, it was this sticker right here. It's a red rhombus, about two by two inches, with a reflective white center. A, B, C, and it says, always be careful. But A, B, C was a company named Alabama Byproducts Corporation. Ronnie got a few of these stickers back then. He put one in a box and one on his brand new yellow hat. This was just the beginning of Ronnie's sticker collecting. After 34 years as a miner, he now has several photo albums filled with thousands of stickers. Some are inside jokes. Some commemorate big events at work. Lots of other coal miners across the country have collections just like Ronnie's. Miners use these stickers for safety and for communication and as a kind of currency down in the mines. It was just what coal miners did, you know. Kids collect baseball cars in the coal mines. You know, that's all you had, really, to collect, you know, was coal mine stickers, so. One of the darkest of all working environments, underground mines. Since the beginning of underground mining, one of the biggest dangers in the workplace has been the darkness. Coal miners of today would shudder at the thought of using some of the early methods of coal mine illumination. Well into the era of industrial society, miners were still using open flames as their only source of light. The darkness makes accidents more likely. And even though technology has improved to make mines brighter and safer, it's still an issue. The culture of mining, to a certain degree, has been shaped by the level of risk involved. Work cultures have very strong cultures, especially uh, ones that face danger, like mining, uh, firefighting, police work, the military, deep-sea fishing, etc. 
This is Elaine Cullen. She's an occupational ethnographer, and she spent a lot of time with miners, like actually down in the mines with them. Mining has a very strong culture. Um, I think the reason is because people who work underground are well aware of the fact that uh, every day you go in, you don't know if you're coming out. The first time Cullen went down into a mine, she was told that she had to have something reflective on her hard hat. There's a lot of heavy machinery moving around, from buses to the shears, roof bolters, and other tools used to extract coal. People get hit, they get run over, they get crushed by mobile equipment. And so reflective material increases the visibility of the people underground. We put uh, strips of reflective tape on the back of our hard hats. But then it became pretty obvious that other people had other things on their hard hats, and these were stickers. The stickers had originally been little advertisements that the manufacturers of mining equipment handed out. Even before the late 1960s, when mining safety laws started requiring reflective materials underground, miners used those stickers to stay visible to each other. But as time passed, the stickers evolved. They became more personal and started to tell miners' stories. And the mine companies themselves started printing stickers for their workers. They went from simple ads to signaling an identity. These are sort of, um, they're symbols, symbols of the mining industry and that you're part of it, that you're a miner. After a year in the Alabama mine, Ronnie swapped out his yellow hard hat for a black one, which meant he was no longer a rookie. With that came more stickers. The stickers always came in twos. One went on his hard hat, which he actually brought out to show me. So where's your six inches of reflective tape? I'll probably cover all mine up with stickers. You can see all the Alabama stickers on it, you know. The other sticker he saved for his growing collection. A miner showed Ronnie how to keep the stickers organized, so each week he'd sit down and put the new stickers in an album. What's this one? That's uh, the Grim Reaper, it looks like, don't it? It says UMWA. That's a uh, union sticker. I'm sure it's got something to do with Black Long. Managers and the safety man at his mine gave him stickers with the mine name on them, and his union gave him stickers with union messages on them. One of his favorite stickers has the state of Alabama outlined in red, and inside it says, Alabama Coal Miner. That's kind of a pride thing there, you know, Alabama Coal Miner. As he gained more experience, he got stickers commemorating his accomplishments. He worked at a company early on that counted the amount of coal mined by the number of cars filled during a shift. Something like 100 cars was okay, but Ronnie has a sticker that says his team mined 150 cars in one shift. And then this sticker says 150 car club with a little play bunny, playboy bunny on there. He also has one commemorating 225 cars in a shift, which is a big deal. You have a big run, then the next night you're outside and all the guys that didn't have such a good run or whatever, and your boss is going around giving you these stickers, and it was just... Uh, Kind of an incentive thing. In the 1960s and 70s, a number of major mine safety laws were passed in the U.S., and Elaine Cullen started working at a new agency that was responsible for studying and enforcing safety in the mines. For years, she researched mining culture. In the 2000s, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, a federal agency, hired her to develop a safety training program for coal miners. By that time, she knew who she was dealing with, so she knew she might be facing some skepticism from the miners she was trying to reach. I don't look like a miner. Um, I'm a woman, and most of them are not. So 
uh, getting them to work with me, especially when I was a representative of the federal government and, you know, they are a little leery to, you know, work with the government. But Elaine had seen that the miners were really into these stickers, and she figured she could use them to gain their trust and to convey messages about safety. But she knew just putting work safe on a sticker wouldn't cut it. She needed something to grab the miners' attention. I mean, we were working out in um, eastern Kentucky. It was a mining community with deep cultural ties to coal, and she started to notice something. She'd be walking along with the safety guy. And as we would approach another miner, He would squeal like a pig. I finally asked him, I said, Jesse, what's going on here? Why are they doing that? And he said, oh, they're just saying they know I'm a coal hog. And I said, what is a coal hog? And he said, a coal hog is hungry for coal, greedy for coal, can't ever get enough. Meaning that you're a good miner. So Elaine took the idea and designed a sticker with a big muscular pig with a hard hat on. And it says, coal hogs work safe. So what we were doing is putting those two ideas together, that you can be a coal hog, but you can also work safely. The miners loved it. Oh, gosh, I think we printed 3,000 to to begin with. And I have have one little packet left that I'm kind of keeping as a, you know, keepsake. Some of Cullen's other designs were duds. Her team made one with a dead canary. Canaries were once used to check for bad air in a mine, but that was a long time ago, and the younger miners didn't get it. Other stickers catering to the raunchy humor in the mines didn't pass muster with her bosses in the federal government. For example, they designed one sticker to remind miners to check for gas in the mines. So what the this one was a, the back end of a donkey and had the donkey kind of looking back at you, and it said, uh, don't be an ass check for gas and kind of have this little cloud coming out. Gas can be really dangerous underground and donkeys were once used to carry coal out of the mines. Oh boy, the the, uh, folks in Washington didn't like that one. (laughs) But the miners loved it. (laughs) Yeah. Unless Elaine visited your mine, it'd be hard to get one of these stickers. A lot of the stickers were specialized or localized, depending on what organization or company designed them. That's part of what made collecting them fun. I have over 26,000 different stickers in my collection, and I've, I've kind of come to believe that you either are a collector or you're not. And if you're not a collector, you just don't get it. And if you are a collector, you just really can't help yourself. <laughs> this is Lenny Hanner. And I'm... Uh, Uh, a coal miner from southern Illinois. Lenny has worked in coal mines for 40 years. He's a major sticker collector. At the height of his collecting in the 1980s, he'd exchange stickers with other collectors across the country and go to sticker swaps almost every weekend. Those are meetups where miners exchange pieces. Lenny says unique stickers were like currency in the mines, a way to buy or sell favors and help. For instance, say you're a trucker and you've rolled up to the mines with a big load of supplies. You asked some of the miners to help you unload. The first thing they wanted to know is, do you have any stickers? Without stickers, the miners wouldn't exactly rush to help. So they all learned that they, they had stickers in that truck when they arrived, and that's, uh, they tend to get unloaded a whole lot faster that way. Lenny still works for a mining company, but above ground these days. He lives in an old mining town in a house that was once owned by a mining company. And he's got a full room devoted to mining memorabilia. I'm, I'm married to the, you know, the most understanding woman in the world. 
He keeps his stickers in 27 albums organized by type of sticker. The ones printed by mining companies, the ones equipment manufacturers gave out, the ones focused on safety and union issues. Some of them are especially sentimental. I have a, a, a sticker that I got from a friend of mine, and he recently passed away. And I have just a couple stickers in my collection that really make me think of him when I see them. The sticker albums function just like photo albums, reminding miners of their milestones and stories. They are just little pieces of, of our history, of our past, little mementos. Uh, I guess maybe like a postcard if you travel, that you might pick up a postcard that, that reminds you of something from the past. We can just see our past mining history there on the pages of the album. Of course, just like with photos, some of the darker memories don't end up in the album. In 2011, after more than 30 years in the mines, my partner's dad, Ronnie, had an accident. We were living a thousand miles away and paced around in my living room as news trickled in. We eventually learned that his hand got pulled into a machine, and it took a finger. Down in Alabama, he was rushed to a hospital. He was told to call his wife, Deborah. At first, he didn't want to call. What happened in the mine stayed in the mine. But the nurse insisted, and Deborah happened to be nearby. I remember Deborah looking at me when she came in the room and said, Ronnie, Johnson, how'd you get so dirty? You know, like, I mean, I'd been getting that way for years, and I guess she had never saw me. I had on my rubber boots, and my face was all black, and my hand was all wrapped up in a bandage. He'd never really shared much about his life in the mine with his family. I guess they had never saw me like that. I, I, I didn't tell them what I went through. The sticker albums stacked up in his cozy house only tell their stories to those who know how to read them. Ronnie says before he lost his finger, he'd gone 31 years without spending a night in the hospital. He'd never ridden in an ambulance and never had an accident in the mine that made him lose work hours. I caught up for all those 31 years in one night, though, you know. Ronnie never got a sticker for that. So what do you do with a mine that's no longer productive? Well, lots of things, it turns out. Kurt Kolstad tells us about his favorite examples of adaptive reuse after this. Support for 99% Invisible comes from Sonos. My favorite piece of architecture is a home filled with music. When you have a Sonos system, each room has its own soundtrack. In my case, I have uh, punk rock showers, uh, Hamilton score for dinner. Sometimes it's Sufjan Stevens for dinner. Uh, podcasts are really good with dishes, and it's all controlled by one easy app. Sonos makes my house 100 times better. For the first time ever, Sonos is offering the listeners of 99% Invisible 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code INVISIBLE10, that's INVISIBLE10 at Sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer. 99% Invisible is brought to you by Adobe XD, the fastest way to turn your best ideas into beautiful experiences. User experience design is an industry filled with a variety of problem solvers, people with varied backgrounds and education who enrich UX design with their different points of view and empathy for users. Heather McGaw came to UX via photography and industrial design, but then really fell in love with UX research and warns designers of the dangers of not doing the proper research. 
sometimes when we're not doing the research, we can start to solve problems that like we wish were problems because they're easy to solve. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of can impose our wishful thinking onto people, uh, which can lead to sort of weird band-aid solutions. I think that's a big risk. Visit the Adobe XD blog to explore how design solves problems, how to do good research, and Heather's advice for designers starting out. Go to adobe.ly slash UXIRL. Support is provided by FreshBooks. In 3300 BC, to keep track of the goods and services they delivered, merchants created IOUs by inscribing on heavy clay tablets. Mercifully, clay tablets have been replaced with invoices that are much easier to manage, thanks in part to our friends at FreshBooks. Although they can't lay claim to inventing the invoice, FreshBooks can take credit for reinventing how invoices are used and for transforming how small business owners deal with their time-sucking piles of admin and paperwork. FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software that radically simplifies and speeds up tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online. And if you have any questions whatsoever, FreshBooks' award-winning customer service is amazingly helpful, super friendly, with zero attitude. Plus, a real-life person usually answers in three rings or less. To try an unrestricted 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash 99PI and enter 99PI in the How Did You Hear About Us section. We were attracted to the coal miner stickers because it was this cool way that design and the culture of mining intersected, and it brought to mind another interesting juxtaposition of design and abandoned mines that Colstead wrote about on the website. So I asked him to come in the studio and talk about it. I think a lot of people tend to have this idea that mines are these, you know, rickety, dangerous places to go, um, you know, with rotting timber frames holding up sections of right. of tunnel that could collapse on you at any moment. But the reality is a lot of mines are much bigger than that and much more stable than that and really have promising futures doing much different things than they were designed for. What's a good example? So one example would be there's this really cool mine in Romania that was actually first mined for salt nearly a thousand years ago, and it's been used on and off as a salt mine ever since. So it's really deep and it's really complex. And recently they decided we're going to turn this into an attraction. So they made it a museum. They made it kind of a theme park. You can go down there and like boat around on this water. And <laughs> and the pictures are just sort of mesmerizing. They've really lit this place up. So you can go down and really get a sense of the geology, but also just have this kind of fun experience underground. Cool. Are there any in the U.S.? Yeah, in Kansas, there's a data center. Mm-hmm. It's a little less exciting, but it, a little more functional on a sort of day-to-day basis that essentially uses the natural, you know, even temperatures and the protection of this mine space, right. this old limestone mine space, to house its servers. And you can imagine, you know, if, if you're just trying to keep these servers running, you know, during any kind of weather the perfect place is just to tuck them on the ground. Yeah, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. And there's also a research facility that is doing experiments on dark matter mm-hmm. far underground in South Dakota in an old gold mine. It's about a mile deep. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that there's a lot of particles that sort of just float through space and bombard our atmosphere on a pretty regular basis. Mm-hmm. And getting below the surface, they can get away from a lot of that noise and have a lot more of a kind of clean experiment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, that makes a ton of sense. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And, you know, if they decide to destroy the universe, at least they're a mile underground. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right? <laughs> the, hope, the hope is that they'd only just destroy their lab in a mountain or something, right? Like, well, there you go. <laughs> so what's your uh, favorite example? So my favorite is probably the Louisville Mega Cavern, which is this 
huge, huge underground space in Louisville, Kentucky. If you buy the argument that it's now a building, it's the largest building in Kentucky <laughs> at about 4 million square feet. Mm-hmm. And basically, this mine opened in the 1930s. They dug out limestone for decades, really carved this thing out. In the 1960s, they actually talked about using it as a fallout shelter in case the Cuban Missile Crisis went the wrong way. <laughs> right. And what, they were planning to pack like tens of thousands of people in there. And then eventually, it sort of fell into disuse. And some uh, investors came along and said, hey, we could do something with this. And they did. Basically, they bought this thing and they started you know, putting businesses in there. They started using it for storage because it's sort of you know, temperature stable. It's a good place for storage. And then they did something kind of weird and they started adding all of these kind of theme park elements to it. So you can go take tram tours of the underground. You can go take zipline tours. There's a ropes course. Mm-hmm. At the heart of it all, one of the biggest functions is this huge, huge 300,000 plus square foot bike park. And it's like a BMX bike park with like yeah, hills and hills jumps, and, jumps and, stuff, yeah. and all that stuff. And they build those out of all the sort of fill that was already carved out and sort of laying around from the miners, right? So all they have to do is just kind of pick up the dirt here, shovel it over there, and they can make entirely new courses. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And we have some pictures of these on our website? Oh, yeah. We've got a bunch of pictures and some video of this on the website. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. That's so cool. Yeah. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Irina Zhirov with Delaney Hall. Tech production and mix by Sharif Youssef. Music by Sean Real. Our senior editor is Katie Mingle. Kurt Kolstad is the digital director. The rest of the staff is Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, Taryn Mazza, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of Radiotopia and 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is part of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the best, most innovative shows in all of podcasting. We are supported by the Knight Foundation and coin-carrying listeners just like you. Speaking of Radiotopia, the West Wing Weekly from Radiotopia is two guys, Joshua Molina, who was on the West Wing, and Rishikesh Hirway, who knows every detail about every aspect of the West Wing, and they go episode by episode through the show. But it's so much more than just a TV recap podcast. They've had all the stars of the show on, plus Josh and Rishi delve into real political issues brought up on the show. For an episode of the West Wing about war crimes, they discussed it with President Obama's expert on war crimes and international criminal courts, former UN ambassador David Pressman. And when an episode had this weird little subplot about one character discovering that she was Canadian, they interviewed Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to talk about his job and how it was depicted on the West Wing. Justin Trudeau is apparently a big West Wing fan. Aaron Sorkin himself comes on for a discussion of each season finale. They're up to the end of season three, so you can start from the beginning or just jump into your favorite episode of the show. You can find it at thewestwingweekly.com or radiotopia.fm or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find 99% Invisible and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, and Reddit too. But our beautiful home on the internet with more design stories than we could ever tell you inside this podcast is our website, 99pi.org. Radiotopia. Thank